good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll talk to the director of a new documentary that tells the story of a family-run art house theater struggling to navigate the current entertainment landscape. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review Steppenwolf Theater's latest, the new production of Harold Pinter's No Man's Land. Later in the show, I'll take you with me on my visit to one of Chicago's last true doll shops. We'll hear what impact the new Barbie movie is having on business. And I'll pay tribute to WDCB family member and local Mambo legend Victor Parra, the longtime program host, died this past week. I'll revisit an interview I did with him ahead of his final broadcast. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. After a summer of box office disappointments, the film industry finally had some reason to celebrate this past week. The phenomenon known as Barbenheimer is bringing people back to theaters. Box office numbers are inching closer to pre-pandemic levels, but inconsistent performances from some blockbusters in the first six months of the year had hung a dark cloud over Hollywood. Then came the dueling debuts of Barbie and Oppenheimer, the matchup nicknamed Barbenheimer. In their first week at the cinema, the films brought in a combined $500 million globally, and that number is only going up. The results provide a bright spot for an industry that's still recovering from the darkest days of the pandemic when theaters were shuttered or reopened with caveats and then forced to close again. The public health emergency, combined with already changing consumer tastes, as more movie fans opted to watch things at home, has led to some real concerns about the future of film exhibition. A new documentary titled Only in Theaters offers some insights into some of those larger issues by focusing on the specific story of a family-owned theater company in Los Angeles trying to navigate these new realities. The film puts a spotlight on the Lemleys, a family that's run arthouse cinemas in Southern California for three generations. The family's connection to movies goes almost as far back as the very origins of motion pictures in this country. Director Raphael Sparge covers that fascinating history in his documentary. He also captures a very contemporary story of the Lemleys' struggle to keep the family business going in a changing entertainment landscape. I recently caught up with Sparge to talk about his film, Only in Theaters. So let's start at the the beginning. Where did the idea to make a documentary about the Lemley theaters come from? The, The simple answer is that I was a recipient of Greg Lemley's kindness as relates to how he really interacts with filmmakers. You know, when I when I originally called the Lemley Theaters to show a film of mine, I got Greg Lemley on the phone. Greg is the grandson of the founder of this, you know, third generation business, which is really this art house cinema in Los Angeles, which has this incredible legacy story. The legacy story is illustrated on this wall, which is featured in the film, and it's uh, sort of an astounding recounting of um, of Hollywood, uh, going all the way back to Carl Lemley, who was the first cousin, who was a you know a German Jew who came to America and basically um, ultimately started a little film company called Universal Pictures. You know, made 800 movies, including Phantom of the Opera and Punchback of Notre Dame, and 
on and on, and then basically also discovered some remarkable people like Valentino and and uh, Merleau and and a young illustrator named Walt Disney. And he was a, he was a, a Hollywood mogul. His his also had a passion for his home country and was responsible for saving a lot of people, you know, from the the perils of World War II. And um, he was sort of a Schindler of sorts, and and he was able to sponsor because he was a wealthy man about 350 people, including two cousins who came. And those two cousins then started this movie theater, and in 1938, and their their mission, their their kind of sense of purpose, because of them, uh, in this case, Max Lemley, uh, who's Greg's grandfather, really had a passion for for film from Europe and so-called foreign film, and was really responsible for bringing foreign film to Los Angeles and really introducing it as a, as, a, as commercially viable. And at the time, influenced a lot of other filmmakers because it was the place to go to come see these movies. Any of your listeners in Chicago may not may not know of, may not know what the Lemley Theaters is as sort of a cultural institution in L.A., but there are theaters like, uh, like the Lemley Theaters that really are populate cities all across America. And, and these cities sometimes family businesses, are, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, the lifeblood of, of smaller independent foreign and documentary films. They literally uh, make it possible. And so this film, um, in the telling of this family story and this incredible legacy story, also ultimately backed into into this larger question about the future of movie theaters. And, and that's not just in Los Angeles, that's everywhere. Probably with a lot of documentaries the filmmakers go into it not knowing where the the story was going to go for you as you just kind of outlined just that family story of the the lemleys that legacy is is compelling on its own initially was that the idea just focusing on this this family and, and the legacy and then current events kind of changed your trajectory yeah that's really it i mean i, I was captivated by this sort of family which is effectively theater royalty Right. I mean, there's there's and there's so many um, just uh, ways in which this family who, you know, love the art of film and filmmaking and and the audiences who love it. They have had this mission uh, to really bring, you know, bring these wonderful movies to the people, as it were. And and that in of itself seems so significant. I mean, in a, in a, in a world and a culture that's so focused on kind of, um, you know, <laughs> Stock prices and and uh, you know uh, uh, kind of big behemoth you know companies that don't really consider the artists. This was a family whose singular mission was really about supporting artists, and that uh, in and of itself seemed something truly remarkable and something worth really uh, well. As, as as Arthur Miller says in, in *Death of Salesman*, you know, attention must be paid. It, it felt significant. And and substantial, um, and and that's you know at least initially what inspired me, but I had no idea what I was in for. <laughs> right, right. You reference that that mission. From what you can tell, it does that that commitment to filmmaking and, and the artistry and in foreign films did that come from the brothers Kurt and Max, and then just stay through the next generations. Well, here's the history of this. So basically. Um, Max and Kurt, two brothers, basically founded Lemley Theaters. I don't think it was called Lemley at the time. It was a little theater in a place called Highland Park, which is kind of outside of the center of L.A. And, and it was a neighborhood theater, you know, kind of a second-run neighborhood theater, as it were. And then they basically expanded to more theaters. And then what happened was uh, this upstart uh, kind of uh, technology called television came along, and it wiped out 
uh, they went from six theaters down to one. It wiped out many, many theaters at the time because people were, would go out two, three times a week, and now they stopped. An echo, of course, to what you know where we are now, right? But what then happened was that uh, Kurt uh, stepped out of the business uh, because the business, in a way, was no longer able to support two families, and Max continued with it. And it was, as I understand it, it was really Max's vision to bring and start introducing these foreign films and and then really to kind of really carve out this kind of idea of you know foreign independent and and documentary film as a as a as a place to get you know great alternative program um, as it were to the Hollywood movies <laughs> in a in a in a city that you would think that's kind of the you know again kind of Rome as far as the as the movie industry you'd think that there would be great access to lots of great films. That was not the case, and 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 still, you know, it's still somewhat, you know, challenged in that regard. So these theaters that that provide, you know, let's say films that don't have superheroes in them, is there anything wrong with those movies? I like them just fine, but I but I also like other films, and 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 films that you know might not be something that you know I could discover without some of the curation that these movie theaters provide, which is the ability to kind of go through and and sort of point in a direction towards a, oh, look at that interesting Chinese film and look at that amazing Turkish film. And wow, I didn't know about this amazing documentary. And that kind of programming, it's important for, uh, you know, those of us who love the language of film, um, but it's also, I believe, important for other other reasons, which, of course, we, we talk about a little bit in the movie. Let's pause here for a moment and listen to a clip from Only in Theaters. I'm not going to be someone watching Lawrence of Arabia on my iPhone. I love Lawrence of Arabia. I love my iPhone. But I don't apologize for that particular prejudice because there's something magical when hundreds of strangers sit in a dark room and see something on this giant screen together. It's not just the scale of the exhibition. It's the experience collectively. And that's the thing I think that takes us right back to that tribal thing of the 100,000 years ago of, of storytelling, entrancing us into um, learning something. That was Oscar-winning sound mixer Mark Ulano talking about what makes the movie-going experience so special in the new documentary, Only in Theaters. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking to actor and filmmaker Raphael Sparge, the director of Only in Theaters. At about the halfway point of the documentary, Greg Lemley The current president of the Family Theater Company is at a crossroads of sorts. It's 2019, and he's deciding whether it's time to sell and get out of the cinema business or keep going. We in the audience, of course, know what's coming in 2020, in March of 2020. Obviously, the the trajectory of the the story changed once the the pandemic took hold. We shot this film over two and a half years, right? So I guess there are two kinds of docs, right? There's the kind of doc where you kind of, you you know your story, you've done your research, you go in and you shoot it. And you deliver it. The other kind is this kind of much more amorphous and kind of um, slow letting the story happen. And it's a far more dangerous and risky approach, honestly. Who knows what it could have been? But what happened at some very specific point um, was that it was clear, uh, and and this happens in docs, where uh, the story you think you have one story and the story actually comes and says, uh-uh, we're going this way. You as a filmmaker at that point have to decide, well, okay, which way am I, you know, I, am I, am I going to come in and just do what I wanted to do or do I, do I follow this? And that's what we decided to do. We had to kind of just pivot and go with it. 
we had no idea where it was going to go. And, 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 you know, yes, the pandemic is a part of the movie. It's not a pandemic movie. It's actually only about six minutes of the movie, but, but it is a function of, of the story that we tell over the course of the film. And certainly it, uh, it is a, you know, something that the Lemley's dealt with. Um, but all movie theaters, you know, across the country, across the world, you know, were closed for over a year. And, and, and the complexities of that, and now that the after effects are, are interesting and complicated. You know, I made this film, and, and the hope was that one day it could, you know, certainly tell a story about this L.A. family. But, but the other hope was that it would translate to other cities outside of L.A. And, and we have, um, we opened last year in 2022 and and then spent the better part of this past year playing all over the country. Uh, we played 80 theaters. What I was very gratified to hear and to see was that um, this story and, and this journey and the challenges and, and the, kind of the epic kind of roller coaster that, that they go through was echoed in many ways by other people, other family businesses, not just movie theaters, right? Um, but other family businesses who faced you know, all sorts of challenges. And the, the hope was that I could tell a specific story that also then spoke to a universal story about families. To me, the, the cornerstone in all of this was the family, the family, the family. Yeah, I was thinking about that. The, the Lemley theaters have this special backstory in history, but that story is also representative of similar things happening all over the country as independently owned movie theaters struggle to to keep the lights on in this current environment Um, so as an arts reporter i'm in my own bubble interacting with creatives and arts focused people who value art house cinemas the people i'm around are always talking about how much they value going to the theater but i know that's not everyone and so this is just your opinion but what's your sense of the the public sentiment regarding going to the the movies these days we see some big box office numbers at times, but we also know theaters are struggling. What are you seeing as some of the factors in play here? Right. So, I mean, it's an interesting and complicated question, and it's evolving even right now as we speak as we're in the midst of the strike. And I'm an actor, so I'm obviously on the picket lines, and there are other complexities within all of this. But at least initially, you know, some of the numbers would show that going to the theaters are, you know, it, it, it's very popular. Um, you know, we're seeing grosses in some movies over the past few years that have been the biggest ever, you know, uh, this past week we had this Barbon right. extravaganza, <laughs> right. Right. Um, and, and blew the socks off of even the highest expectations. So that's thrilling. Clearly people see and have rediscovered going back to the movies and what a joy that is. The, the, the question I guess remains and, and this is, you know, evolving is whether people will come to see smaller movies. I don't think it's a streaming um, movies conversation. I, I, I think ultimately it's, you know, there's all sorts of form, uh, kind of home entertainment, including video games and TikTok and any number of other things. And ultimately also people haven't gotten out of the habit of going. I believe that um, as we remind ourselves about by going, that when you go to the movie theaters, what you get is an experience. You have real estate dedicated to, having a movie, uh, you do so in, a, in an audience with other people um, where you get to actually, you know, you come in as strangers and you leave as friends, as it were, because you have this shared experience. Um, 
the, the emotion, the screams, the cries, the gasps are all amplified because you're there in a room with other people. You're there in, in front of a larger screen, a screen bigger than you, um, in order to be able to kind of fall into it and get lost in it and, and have um, a different experience of perspective. Um, that's what the movie experience is. And that's what this 125-year-old art form really is designed to do, is to kind of really transport us. That's like going to a movie sometimes. You can wander out into the light of day and go, wow, it's like you went away for a weekend because you, you actually kind of interrupt you know, all the noise in your head um, and, and get to co- go sort of enjoy something. Um, uh, you know, literally uh, almost sometimes out of body, right? So th- that's the joy of going to the movies. Um, I, I believe that that will continue to remain in place. What, what is still in play at the moment, um, and, and this is what is, I think, still somewhat struggling, is the smaller movies. Um, you know, some of these, you know, um, uh, more intimate films. You know, anecdotally, one of the first films that I went back to, was the first movie I went back to see in the movie theater was No Man Land. And that was this, you know, won, won the Oscar, and it, it, it was at the time this really, you know, it's a small, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's a small movie. There's no visual effects. It's, you know, it's an astounding performance. Uh, she won the Oscar, of course, and, and, it, and it was, you know, this beautiful, beautifully intimately told story. And for our listeners, No Man Land came out in 2020 during the pandemic. Most people saw it online through Hulu. It starred Frances McDormand and, and won three Oscars, including Best Picture. There were five people in the movie when I went to see it. And, and in point of fact, actually, it just blew my socks off. Uh, it just was a, a, an astounding experience because it was a small, intimate movie. To see it on a big screen, it amplified the experience so much. And and it, it and because I had been in a movie theater as well, it was like, oh my god! Like it, I I was uh, I was you know three feet off the chair <laughs> in terms of kind of what it was. You know, it was like a like an as they they call it Disneyland an e ticket. You know, it was a real exciting ride and it and it was so much deeper and better than i don't care how big your television is anything you could do at home and and so the hope is that these so-called smaller movies can continue to find an audience and 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 i say that for multiple reasons so that we can keep the theaters alive these theaters depend on you know the big and the small theaters you can't have some of blockbusters every weekend we have to have an appetite of other films smaller films that continue to uh, bring us in. And so for the art form, for the life of the art form, for the future of the art form, independent films are, are really important. And so the hope is that we can keep them alive by, you know, continuing to go to the movies. And just really quickly, I recently did a story on the opening of an independent record store, which you don't see too many new record stores opening up these days. But one of the things that came up in our conversation was just about how communities maybe are starting to learn how to appreciate independent businesses, whether it's a record store or a a bookstore. These used to be staples of communities, but because of other options, a a lot of people stopped shopping at these independent businesses and then they were forced to close. And and some people, I think, realized that they missed having those. And it's kind of the same thing with an independent cinema. You know, you might be able to stream something at home, but if you enjoy that experience of going to see a movie, you have to support it, just like you, you have to support locally owned businesses. 
That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I, I know we live in a world of convenience and a, and a world of clicks and magic things come to our door. And and um, and you know, God bless you know those companies that can do that because um, it saved me a few times. But but I the fact is that you know the neighborhood hardware store, the you know the neighborhood uh, grocery store, the the neighborhood you know bookstore. These are important things that we need to remember. That we have to we have to take care of them. They're they're part of the fabric of our community, and they enrich our lives. And so, every opportunity that we can be reminded to actually engage with them, go out and spend a few dollars there, as opposed to sitting at home and clicking. Uh, you know, in the long run, we we do pay for our convenience by virtue of when those stores are gone, when they've got a for rent sign up. You know, after the hundred. You know, there's a place in Brooklyn that was a incredible market for 100 years and um and it closed that for rent sign is so sad right so powerfully what a what a tragedy that that's gone and and we just have to remember how important it is to support you know what's around us and not necessarily stay in our bubble i really uh, enjoyed the the documentary and folks can check it out now streaming or, or on dvd even though the title is only in theaters but still uh you know, watch the documentary at home, but then go support films. I did want to, before I let you go off topic, um, I'm coming to you from Chicago, so we have a bit of a, a local connection in addition yeah. to, to making films behind the camera. You're also an actor, and one of the first films, which I know many of my listeners are very familiar with, uh, that you were in, was filmed on the North Shore of Chicago, and he, yeah. you played Glenn in Risky Business. The film that sent Tom Cruise skyrocketing to fame was set and shot in the Chicago area. What are some of your memories from from being in this area making Risky Business? Oh my gosh. Well, we just celebrated the 40th anniversary of Risky Business. Oh, wow. um, A week and a half ago. Oh, Uh, We had a big screening, actually, uh, with (laughs) Rebecca De Mornay and uh, Curtis Armstrong and uh, Bronson Pinchot. Thrilling to see everyone, and there's photos online, I think, that are circulating of, of the event, but it, it's, uh, uh, Tom was busy, he was across town, basically opening that other Mission something movie, I can't remember what it's called, <laughs> and um, uh, <laughs> we, uh, it was all of our first movies, Rebecca's, her first ever movie, I think she'd been an extra in a movie prior to that, so it was, uh, it was really incredible, the casting prowess on their part, you know, and, and you know, not the least of which, of course, is the biggest movie star of the last 40 years, which is Tom Cruise, they picked him, and it's kind of a an astounding thing. Now, st- sitting where we were and looking back, and and uh, you know, all of our <laughs> all of our assembled careers, you know, uh, we've we've all been able to keep going and, and make it work, uh, you know, in a, in a complicated game. Oh yeah, I mean, it's a, one of my favorites because of its local tie, and then uh, so I did watch it last night just to kind of refresh uh, my memory, but. Uh, Anything you remember about filming in the Chicago area back then? Oh God, yeah. I mean, we 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 were in Skokie. We stayed in a hotel in Skokie. Um, there was a, a, I think, there was a high school out there. Um, yeah, I think it was we, Niles North. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And um, and uh, Kevin Anderson also was in the movie. Who was a local theater actor. Who obviously, went on to do quite you know quite well himself. And um, and you know, there's um. God, Glencoe, I guess, is where the house was, where kind of the infamous party happens. Um, right. Although you know, we had a lot of it built on stage of the interior, but the exterior was a house. Um, and I've met people 
over the years, you've told me, "Oh, I'm down the block," or "That's my, that's my, <laughs> my you know, I, I know that house. I guess it's famous," which is sweet. It's a great story, and and Paul Brickman, who wrote it and directed it, is an interesting character in that he made this movie. He was very, very. I mean, the film blew up, obviously, and and is still a classic all these years later. But I, he didn't really direct again for about ten years, and my understanding is that he was offered pretty much everything. Um, and, and, and really had just wanted to be a writer. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's an interesting, complicated story of someone who, you know, had suddenly everything offered to him and, and he decided to kind of lay low. He moved to Santa Barbara and, and decided to kind of, um, you know, not continue, uh, despite the fact that he'd sort of gotten, you know, kind of the thing that everyone wants, which is sort of overnight success. Wow. Yeah, that is interesting. Since then, you've worked on so many things, but did you have any sense of like that it was going to be this huge hit while working on it? No. Um, you know, you, you don't know uh, how, when you're working on something, how it's going to hit the zeitgeist, you know, like where it's going to be. Like, like I am um, can't really promote this, but I can just show you factually that I'm, I'm going to be in The Exorcist, which is opening in a, in a month or so. Yeah, I read that. In October. And... Um, everyone involved is very excited about it um, and worked very hard, um, just like we did on Risky Business. And, and you know, you hope that it kind of lands in a way and it, it hits people's imagination in a way at that moment. And it um, it compels people to want to see it. I'm sure everyone who worked on Barbie felt the same. Like, I think this is a good movie, but we don't really know. You know, like, I hope, it, hope it's good, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and then it, it, like, it takes on a, a life of its own. You hope that a movie uh, finds its audience. You know, going back to Only in Theaters, you know, I, I, I made this movie. It was connected to something in me. It was passionate in me. And, and I'm, I've been so uh, delighted and overwhelmed and, and uh, uh, moved by the response to the film and the fact that we get to talk about important issues and the fact that it's drawn attention to, you know, both you know, movie theaters and then the people who love going to them and the people that make things to go in them. It's wonderful when it works. <laughs> it's extremely hard to get it to work, but when it does work, it's thrilling. Raphael, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Thanks, man. Thanks for your time. And, and uh, hi to Chicago. I love Chicago. That was Raphael Sparge. He's the director of the new documentary, Only in Theaters. And the film is currently available on DVD and to stream. You can watch it at KinoNow.com, and you can find more information about the film at OnlyInTheaters.com. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. Steppenwolf Theater is wrapping up its current season with a production of Harold Pinter's 1975 play, No Man's Land. And it stars Steppenwolf co-founder Jeff Perry and Mark Ulrich in the leads as Hearst and Spooner, respectively. Ulrich was a late replacement for Austin Pendleton, who left the production for personal reasons. Hurst and Spooner are two older gentlemen of different means who drink too much while waxing nostalgic. Are they strangers or old university friends? Not sure. Lots of subtext to dive into 
And we'll start with Carrie. You say No Man's Land occupies a period of transition for Pinter before some of his more overtly political works. Yeah, it certainly feels that way for me. Now, I want to preface this by saying that although I had read the play, this is my first time seeing a production of it. So some of my impressions may be very much fresh just from this, this first encounter with it as a production, as a piece of art on stage, if you will. Um, yeah, I think if you are familiar with some of the earlier plays of Harold Pinter, most particularly The Caretaker, The Birthday Party, they have the re- recurring theme of strangers appearing who may or may not know a person, who may or may not have evil intent towards that person. There's often a sense of who gets to stay in a certain environment, who is going to be displaced. So all of that is very much present. Um, but it's never in a very overt political way. And I would not say by any means that No Man's Land is overt. But it's also taking place in a world that's a little less uh, gritty, shall we say, than perhaps the world of the caretaker is, which was definitely a very down-at-heels bedsit where a basically transient person named Davies is trying to find a home. Here, it's Hearst and Spooner. Hearst is definitely uh, a well-to-do man of letters. Um, we are in his drawing room, his library, and Spooner seems to have literary pretensions, perhaps minor literary successes of his own. We don't really know. But neither of them are what you would call, you know, street people or uh, ruffians or you know people who seem in any sense overtly marginalized. It's very much, I think, a play about what happens when you start to distrust your memories, what happens when your world that you think you have control over is not necessarily in your control, but nothing is specifically laid out. And even in the later political plays that I think uh, Pinter dove into in the 80s, those are not super specific, but it's always very clear that he's talking about overt abuses rather than the sort of psychological games that we see in so much of his earlier work, and indeed very much in No Man's Land as well. There are the two older men, as you mentioned, and then there are the two younger men who enter the world of the play. Uh, one is Foster, who may or may not be Hearst's son, and the other is Briggs, who seems to be his amanuensis, his henchman, his enforcer. We're not really sure. Um, and I think it's that quality of not being entirely sure that you need to surrender to to fully appreciate the world of the play. I found myself quite entranced by it. I think the performances are really on on point. And I particularly, as you mentioned, Mark Ulrich was sort of a late replacement, an understudy who went, who is now doing the role for the duration of the run, a longtime wonderful local actor stepping in for Austin Pendleton. I thought he did just a smashing job, but I'd be very curious, Jonathan, to hear what your take on this is. I assume you may have seen productions of this in the past. So. I have never read the play, but I have seen it before. I saw the original London production, with Sir Ralph Richardson as Hearst and Sir John Gilgood as Spooner. Wow. Um, and it was, and, you know, that was back in the mid-70s. Right. You know, I was in knee pants, of course. <laughs> um, and this is very much, this play is, uh, let's call it late, early Pinter. It is not yet at all in his overtly political uh, phase, and it is very much, uh, you know, Pinter won a Nobel Prize for literature, and his plays are often called comedies of menace, and this certainly fits in with that category. They're called comedies of menace because most of them are very funny, at least for part of the way through the play, and they also often feature thuggish characters who physically or emotionally threaten other characters, 
although they often do so with unexpected intelligence and verbal finesse. And that description really fits no man's land to a T, uh, along with certain other hallmarks of Pinter's work. All the action is in a closed room with only one way in and out, and someone always seems to be trapped in the room. In this case, it's Spooner. The balance of power between the characters shifts in unexpected ways and often inexplicable ways. Pinter's plays seem to take place in the real world, but there's always something mysterious about them, things that are not clearly spelled out, as both of you have said. The dots, you have to connect the dots yourself. You mentioned, uh, Carrie, that uh, midway through Act One, two younger men appear. Spooner and Hurst are both supposed to be in their mid-70s someplace. Two younger men, Briggs and Foster, there are Hurst's caretakers and servants, and maybe the relationship is something more than that. They perceive Spooner as a threat. Spooner is the outsider, the stranger among the three of them. And indeed, Spooner does his best to undercut them and ingratiate himself with Hearst. He does it with a stream of memories and recollections about himself and Hearst at university together years before, about shared affairs and people that they knew, some of which Hearst half remembers uh, and uh, others of which he doesn't quite remember. And Pinter is exploring here his very favorite themes, the fallibility (laughs) of memory on the one hand and the pliability of perceived truth, on the other hand. The the men had dozens of specific details, but no larger context in which all the details clearly fit. They are caught in the half-world, or half-life of sorts, a no-man's land, which they actually refer to. And neither Hearst nor Spooner, nor Briggs nor Foster, for that matter, can take complete possession of where they are and what's happening. It's funny, because now that you've mentioned that, I do think about another 80s play of Pinter's, A Kind of Alaska, which was based in part on Oliver Sacks' Awakenings, you know, the idea of these people with encephalitis who wake up after decades and are still somehow stuck in the past. They're remembering where they were when they went into that fugue state. So this is not a medicalized condition. As far as we know, perhaps Hearst is in early dementia, perhaps, given the amount of drinking that goes on, some sort of yeah. alcohol-induced, you know, uh, mental you know, fallibility. Uh, but I, it, it's interesting that I feel like he continued on that track with the idea of memory um, and using memory as, as a weapon, as a balm, as a means of getting into this world. I will say, I don't know how you feel about it, Jonathan, but I didn't feel like Spooner, as I said, is quite as marginalized as, like, Davies is in The Caretaker. You know, he's not... He doesn't appear to be utterly transient, although he does appear to have be a man of, of, you know, a little bit of desperation about him. Or perhaps he's just better at masking it than some of the earlier characters we've he's seen. Shabby. He's shabby. Shabby chic. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not so much chic. <laughs> One of the things that interests is, you know, this is typical of Pinter. No Man's Land, at first blush, seems realistic, but it's actually an extremely highly stylized play. It requires astute acting, and which it absolutely gets in this production. I certainly agree with you there. Staged by Steppenwolf guest director Les Waters. Uh, Steppenwolf co-founder Jeff Carey, who is, by the way, an experienced Pinter actor. Not his first time at the rodeo of this play. Jeff Carey is first, and Mark Ulrich is Spooner. They both are really wonderful. They are nuanced and and on top of the dialogue they have to speak, but they are also masters of the play's very 
controlled, almost balletic sometimes, physical movement. Perry particularly, Jeff Perry particularly astonished me. Let's pause here for a moment and listen to a clip from Steppenwolf Theater's production of No Man's Land. In this scene, we hear Hearst welcoming Spooner to his house, but it's Hearst doing all the talking. You look as fit now as you did then. Did you have a good war? Oh, Benson! Thank you. Uh, leave it there, will you? That'll do. How's Emily? What a woman. There you are. What a woman. I have to tell you, I fell in love with her once upon a time. have to confess it to you. Took it out to tea in Dorchester. Told her of my yearning. Decided to take the bull by the horns. Proposed that she betray you. <laughs> Admitted you were a damn fine chap. But pointed out, I would be taking nothing that belonged to you. Simply that portion of herself that all women keep in reserve for a rainy day. <laughs> Had an infernal job persuading her. Said she adored you. Her life would be meaningless were she to be false. Plied her with buttered scones, Wiltshire cream, crumpets, and strawberries. Eventually she succumbed. <laughs> Don't suppose you ever knew about it, what? Oh, we're too old now for it to matter. Don't you agree? <laughs> that was Steppenwolf Theater co-founder Jeff Perry as Hearst doing all the talking in that scene from the theater's new production of No Man's Land. Supporting them are John Hudson Odom, and Samuel Rukin as Briggs and Foster. They're smaller roles, but they're equally well-performed. And I have to say, I feel like the, the setting itself, the set by Andrew Boyce and the lighting by Yiju, creates this almost, to me, it almost felt like a living tomb. It's very high wall. There's one wall that's entirely, you know, books with a long ladder to access them, though you don't get the sense that anybody's actually reading those books anymore. They, too, seem like sort of artifacts of a past that you know, may or may not be accessible to Hearst. Uh, there's a spareness to it, an elegance, but a cold spareness that almost makes you feel like you're in the waiting room of a very strange mausoleum. <laughs> that at least is the feeling that I got. There's a, a chill to it, but I do think it's worth noting for our listeners that this is often a very, very funny piece. Uh, to me, it's funnier in many ways, and perhaps this is why I see it as, as sort of in, in its own, if you will, no man's land, occupying a, 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 a place between you know, the menace of, like, the caretaker or the birthday party, where you felt that the stakes for whoever is not allowed to stay in this world or who is taken forcibly from this world will not be good. And the later political plays were very obvious what is happening to people who fall afoul of the authorities. Here it, it feels more like, uh, like almost an absurdist take on an Oscar Wilde, you know, <laughs> drawing room comedy at points. Um, you know, if, if uh, or, or maybe if it's Oscar Wilde crossed with Sark a little bit, you know, it's like no exit. You're all in this drawing room well, and you're, cha you're exchanging bone mows and memories and little guides and digs at each other. But it is, I think, I thought it was quite, quite funny as well. Um, and I don't know that people, you say comedies of menace, and I think sometimes people lean on the menace 
and not as much on the comedy. That is well, most no, certainly I, I, not the case in this, in this production. As I said, Pinterest plays are very funny, at least part of the way through. Though there's always a point where, as power shifts, so does the tone or the mood to an extent. But yes, there is a good deal of comedy, and it's uh, wonderfully played, dryly, mostly dryly paid, played, but wonderfully played. And the room, the confined space, it's a huge room, but it still is a confined space. Almost no natural light gets into it. There are only, uh, you know, three lamps in this huge room, and there's only one way in or out, and somebody gets locked in. You know, that's very, very typical of Pinter's very confined world. He inherits that from his good friend and, uh, and fellow writer Samuel Beckett and the confined world of, of, of Beckett's plays. But anyway, I would say that Pinter is an acquired taste, certainly. Uh, if you don't know his work, this might be a good introduction, because I think you'll rarely see Pinter better done than this production of No Man's Land. Right. And I think it's worth pointing again, Mark Ulrich, who has you know, a long history in Chicago, and I think it's of a piece with what we've seen. I don't know the re- okay, we don't know the reasons Austin Pendleton left, so I'm not surmising anything. But as theaters been making its comeback post-COVID, the role of understudies has been emphasized more and more for theaters because there has we have seen what the uncertainty can be coming back. And I think Ulrich is a is a shining example of the importance of having you know the people who are just absolutely up to the mark and ready to do these roles in their own right. Um, I thought that the chemistry between him and Jeff Perry was just absolutely delicious. Yep. And the two younger actors as well. I, John Hudson yeah. Odom was just in Tony Stone the last time I saw him at Goodman. Samuel Orkin is a British actor brought in for this. But they all, they too have, uh, you know, a, a great chemistry, but very sort of different approaches. I would say that Briggs, played by Odom, is a little bit more sort of silkily sinister. He's more, you know, he's more the dressed up kind of enforcer, whereas Foster seems more, you know, seems more like the muscle in the operation, if we were to kind of surmise what the roles might be. But again, this is all the fun, speculative part of watching Pinder. You imagine how do these people know each other? How did they come into each other's orbits? What control do they have over each other? It's not all spelled out. And the way you choose to fill in those blanks might actually be something fun that kind of, you know, reveals things to you that you weren't necessarily thinking about. One thing yes. that struck me watching this, you know, with some of the reminiscences about what happened to our cottages, what happened to our lawns, maybe this was because I just come off a state of reading some uh, essays on post-Brexit England, but some of that came to mind <laughs> these older gentlemen sort of talking about what happened to the glories of the England we used to know, Right. And now there's all this uncertainty because, you know, England itself is kind of, you know, the U.K. has kind of entered back into the no man's land since it's no longer part of the E.U. Obviously, that's not what Tinter was writing about. But that's, again, the fun thing about his plays is that they lend themselves to many interpretations, many extrapolations and many tangents, which can take you down to some rather interesting places if you're open to it. Tinter as a Rorschach test. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds like uh, two recommendations. Steppenwolf Theater's No Man's Land continues through August 20th. And now uh, a couple bits of theater news. First, an extension of a play the critics recently reviewed. Right. Just uh, last week, I think it was, we talked about uh, Marie and Rosetta at Northlight Theater. They play about uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, uh, the great gospel and early pop singer and her professional partner for many years, Maria Knight. Uh, we're both very enthusiastic about it. It's at Northlight Theater. It has been extended for one week through August 13th. 
Uh, also, last spring, I think at the end of May, we talked about the big musical production, Gospel at Colonists, that Court Theater had staged, and uh, we were very enthusiastic about it. And it is going on the road. The entire production is going out to the famous Getty Villa Museum up in the mountains above Malibu in Los Angeles, where they actually have an outdoor Greek-style theater. And the Gospel at Colonists, the entire production, will be playing out at the Getty Villa from August 31st to September 30th, which is quite a, a coup for uh, the court theater to uh, move it's the entire production. See. I mean, there have been a state, as we have been talking about over, you know, from time to time, of articles about what's been happening with American theater, with you know, theaters teetering on the edge, with seasons being shortened, all kinds of things. So I, for one, am very heartened to see that these are two shows that are you know, continuing and, and uh, doing quite well and getting getting the attention that they deserve. All right. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. You're, oh, you're welcome, welcome, Gary. Hiya, Bobby. Hi, Ken. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. <laughs> I'm a Bobby girl in the Bobby world. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. It is a Barbie world, at least in Hollywood. It's been a little over a week since the much-anticipated Barbie movie opened in theaters, and the response has been tremendous. The film, directed by Greta Gerwig, has made over $200 million in the U.S. Barbie will likely be among the top five highest-grossing movies of the year domestically. While the film starring Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling was expected to be successful, it's blown past initial box office predictions. And that interest has extended beyond the movie itself. There's been a number of marketing collaborations. You've probably noticed an increase in Barbie products on TV, social media, and store shelves. Then, of course, there's the dolls themselves. I've read a variety of recent stories detailing how the film is reviving an interest in Barbie doll collecting. Reuters reported vintage Barbie prices have increased an estimated 25% in recent months thanks to the movie. In the Chicago area, there's a few vintage toy shops around, but if you're looking to go Barbie doll shopping in person, there's nothing like Gigi's Dolls and Sherry's Teddy Bears. The shop, located in Chicago's Norwood Park neighborhood, fills its 5,000 square feet with every type of doll and doll accessory you could ever imagine. Gigi's Dolls and Sherry's Teddy Bears is owned by the mother-daughter team of Gigi Williams and Sherry Balan. When I was young, probably around four or five, she pulled out her old dolls and I fell immediately in love with them. And so I loved the Shirley Temple that she had. This is Sherry Balan talking about how she first fell in love with the dolls. I recently visited the extensive doll store located at 6029 Northwest Highway on the northwest side of Chicago. Balan says what started as a hobby for her and her mother quickly turned into something more. We did a lot of antiquing, so we were always looking for dolls, and we did the flea markets. There used to be Harlem Irving flea market years ago, and then we used to do the Wheeling flea market, and we used to look to our dolls and other treasures and do antiquing up in Michigan and Wisconsin and even local around. So we had fun looking for things, and it was a fun hobby, and then we started selling things off. We started with doing a flea market, and then we did garage sales. 
From there, opportunities kept growing, and the idea for a brick-and-mortar location presented itself. We were invited to do the first toy show, which was 50 years ago, and we did the toy show, and then we started putting on doll shows. In 1981, I opened a doll shop out in Plainfield. I was driving 100 miles a day, and then we decided when my mom retired from being a dental hygienist to open a shop, so we opened in the Oak Mill Mall in 1983, and then uh, we move from there to 7550 North Milwaukee and now we're at 6029 North Northwest Highway. We've had this shop for 30 years now and we have 5,000 square feet of antique to modern dolls. We still do shows, we still um, buy collections and dolls and have lots of fun. Blonde has seen a lot of doll trends over the years. We saw, you know, the rising of uh, the baby market with the antique dolls and you know, the French dolls, and it's just kind of an interesting thing. We saw the Cabbage Patch raise up in the 80s, and that was a horrible Christmas because nobody bought anything except <laughs> Cabbage Patches. Right. And uh, so it's been fun, and it's been great working with my mom every day. You mentioned trends, of course, dolls themselves, I can imagine, but then also just probably the way you operate because when you first started there was... No eBay? No, there was no eBay. So a lot of things have changed with eBay because when things, you would get a special treasure that, you know, it was like, wow, this is, you know, the first one that I've ever seen of this. And then all of a sudden when eBay comes, you know, it's like, oh, well, it's not so special anymore because, you know, there's people all over the world that are like listing it or looking, you know. So it's definitely made a big difference on the market and it's definitely hurt the prices considerably, especially now with everybody downsizing and, you know, putting things on there for almost nothing sometimes, it seems. Gigi's Dolls does maintain a presence on eBay, selling various dolls to online shoppers, but Balan really enjoys the in-person aspect of her brick-and-mortar store. I definitely would prefer to have something in my hand than just looking at a picture. I mean, even if I'm shopping for clothing or a piece of anything, I would prefer to be able to touch it, feel it. That's why we love having the shop. It's an exciting thing because you never know what a day is going to hold, who's going to come in, what they're going to bring, what they're going to look for, if we have it for them. We have lots of things to look through and lots of things to, you know, help people out with. We have people that come in from all over the world, which is exciting. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking with Sherry Ballon, the co-owner of Gigi's Dolls and Sherry's Teddy Bears, one of the last true doll shops in the Chicago area. The new Barbie film, which is currently in theaters, has ignited a, a new wave of Barbie popularity. I feel like there's a growing interest in, in Barbie dolls, not that Barbie ever went anywhere. She's always been a constant. But are you seeing a renewed interest in Barbie? Are you getting that here at the shop? Yes, we are. I mean, Barbie has always been kind of a constant. I mean, I had Barbie when I was young, and I still have Barbie. And going through the years with, you know, having the ponytail, going to the bubble cut hairstyle that Jackie Kennedy had with the pillbox hats, and, you know, just the hippie era and the workout era with uh, Olivia Newton-John and all that lovely spandex. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, she's always been there, and it's it's wonderful to see, you know, how they've improved some of the things. Some of them, they should go back to, you know, some of the wonderful fine detail that the original had. 
fact, we're sitting here playing with dollies, right? <laughs> and we have Barbies over here. Um, she's wonderful, and I'm looking forward. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I've heard lots of good things about it. So are you getting more calls or more people reaching out with interest? I've had um, a lot of people that have um, said that they have their old Barbies and, you know, they're bringing them out or maybe they're bringing them in for me to look at them, let them know what they are. Um, some people are selling them. You know, some people want to add to their collections. We have lots of people that come in from all over looking at different things and um, lots of people have been calling in regards to the Barbies and just, you know, finding things in their closet and going, oh, yeah, I remember that was in there. How about people who, because of the movie, are interested in collecting Barbies, maybe getting back into their existing collection or starting a new one? We have some people that are um, interested in looking at what's coming out, what is out, and uh, in getting some new things for their collection, whether it be clothes for their collection or another doll to add to it. And we have a lot of vintage clothes, so a lot of people, you know, want to go back and go get that solo in the spotlight or the silken flame outfit or, you know, some of the classics that they remember from the kid being a child. And then for people listening who maybe do have some Barbies packed away, what are you looking for if you're going to buy somebody's Barbies? Everything is condition, and so if they want to email me some pictures, they can email them to questions at ggsdolls.com. We can also, um, you know, if they want to make an appointment to come in for me to look at them, just call ahead of coming, make sure that I'm here, and I'll be more than happy to look at them. A lot of people think, oh, well, it's kind of dirty, dingy, and everything else. Don't clean anything because you could ruin it more than um, helping it sometimes. So it's better just to leave it the way that it is and let me look through and um, see what you have before you take the time and effort in cleaning things. Are there like some holy grail Barbies that you're always looking for? Oh, a number one, a number two. Those are always (laughs) the holy grails. Um, But I just... I love Barbie and I love the clothes and some of the clothes are just absolutely amazing and you know there's different eras of them. I of course grew up with the 60s, my squirrel ponytail so I'm very partial to the ponytails but uh, I love them all. So obviously Barbie's in the news right now but dolls in, in general is the collector market stayed pretty steady through all the years you've been doing this? Uh, we've seen dips and, and rises and I think 9-11 made a big hit on the whole collector's market and everything kind of slowed down from there and uh, but people are starting you know to collect and again and what we need is a lot of newer collectors coming in because of course the regular older collectors are getting older and we need some new blood in there to you know help the collector market continue and to love what's all around us i mean so many people don't want anything which is really sad but you know they you know you get something and you just appreciate it for what it is similar to how you started this through your mom but maybe we don't see the generational thing as much right it seems like the the younger generation is more like they're into their electronics and not necessarily wanting to you know have material items around them which is unfortunate but hopefully that'll change soon that's sherry balan She's the co-owner of Gigi's Dolls and Sherry's Teddy Bears. It's one of the last doll shops in the Chicago area. You can find more info about it online at ggsdolls.com. 
This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Some sad news to report. Local Mambo ambassador, musician, and longtime WDCB program host Victor Pada passed away this week. Many of you listening, no doubt, were familiar with Pada's weekly radio show, The Mambo Express, which aired here Sunday evenings, 2004 to 2017. And before that, he was on a different public radio station. Pada, who was also a musician and band leader, used his radio show to shine a light on Afro-Cuban music for 35 years. La gente lo escucha, se I had the great fortune of being around Pada during his time at WDCB. We crossed paths on Sunday afternoons as he prepared for his show that evening. Always full of energy, his passion for the music he loved was evident from the moment you started talking to him. Pata decided to hang up his headphones and retire the Mambo Express back at the end of 2017. I caught up with him ahead of his last broadcast to talk about 30-plus years on the radio and his lifelong love affair with Afro-Cuban music. This morning, we'll revisit a portion of that interview as we remember Victor Pata. Pata grew up on the west side of Chicago in an Italian neighborhood listening to his father's Mexican music, but a serendipitous encounter with a different type of music when Pata was 15 changed everything. I grew up listening to Mexican music as a kid. You know, when you're young and you're just listening to what your elders. My dad was a, a musician, but his main gig was he was a barber. And there was always a lot of music in the barbershop even. You know, I still love Mexican music. That's who I am, you know. But when you reach, like in any young kid, when you reach your middle teens, then you start listening to other music. How I got turned on to Cuban music, my mother would send either my, myself or my other two brothers when my sister got out of work. She uh, used to sell records at a department store on Roosevelt and Halstead. That's the first time I heard Cuban music, but I didn't know it was Cuban music. So we would go to the store and we'd walk her home. Okay. That's just, that's just the way it is. That's old school, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I was there waiting and she was playing something and I heard it and I heard the drum. Boom, 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 boom. And I got hooked, the sound of that drum. And then I heard the rest and that was my first experience. And it was what you were playing earlier, L'Orquesta Aragón. There you go. <laughs> It's a semi-classical situation. It's violins and a flute player, a piano player, a bass player, and a rhythm section, and two or three voices singing in, in unison, like you're hearing in the background. There's no brass. Now, in Cuban music, you got a lot of different settings. Guys would get guitars, and then later on, they had a trumpet here. And before you know it, there's three trumpets. Before you know it, it's a big band. Everything evolved, just like the music in this country. Sure. You know, like jazz. Jazz came from blues. Well, Cuban music was born in the countryside. The guys that worked, the people that worked the fields. And eventually, that music, just like blues, Evolved. Evolved, yes. Everything evolves. So you hear Orchestra Aragon and then opens up your mind and you just start looking for... Well, like, well I, 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 so I used to volunteer to go pick up my sister. Yeah. I was consumed, you know. and But I didn't know it was Cuban music. And uh, 
It was just sounding good to me. And it's the rhythm. That's the hook. Power's interest in the music only intensified during his time in the Army when he was stationed in Panama. He returned to Chicago interested in more than just listening to Latin rhythms. So when I got out of it, was discharged, I said, I got to play this music. So I get back home. A brother of mine tells me, you know, Eli, a buddy of mine that I grew up with playing ball. So we played 16-inch softball in okay. the schoolyard. And that's what we did all day. That was my, that was my first love. And it still nice. is. So he told me, you know, Eli's playing in a band. It's Eli uh, Gutierrez. And he was a percussionist. So I went and checked him out at the club. And he was working with one of the top bands in the city, led by a Mexican, Manny Garcia. They were working downtown on, on Randolph and right off of State Street. It was called Mambo City. Man, I, I was like glue. I was attached to him. And he taught me the basic patterns of a conga drum. That's the, you play with your hands, mm-hmm. the, big, the big drum. And that's how I started. It took me a couple of years, but I used to go to all the rehearsals that he, with the groups that he was with. And that's, that's how I got started. In the early 70s, Para opened VP Records, a store that only sold one genre of music. Right now it's a Starbucks, right oh, on the man. corner. <laughs> I had, that was my corner. I had it for, for about six years. It was a one-man operation. It wasn't very big, but I had the right stuff. And everything I play on the air, that's the stuff that I sold in my store. Yeah. I didn't have no top 10, you know, uh, nothing like that. It was, uh, I, I didn't even do Mexican music. I'd probably still be in business if I was selling Mexican uh, music. VP Records ended up closing, but the experience did open a door that would end up leading Para to the wonderful world of radio. When I opened my store, I had a, a young man that eventually uh, got himself a master's degree from Harvard, and he used to work part-time for me, and I paid him in records. Oh, wow. He loved Eddie Palmieri. His name was Edwin Claudio. So after he got, you know, graduated and he was back in, in, in Chicago, he wound up, uh, J- I think Jane Byrne named him to the school board, the Board of Education. So they, at that time, they owned or they operated WBZ, and they did nothing, no, nothing Spanish or Latin as far as music. At that time, it was like 90% music, jazz especially, so like we do here. One day, I ran into him, and he tells me, you want to do a radio show? I says, well, I don't know anything about radio. He says, and I, I started buying records since I was 15 years old. Right. I never stopped. So I, I have my own vinyl collection, sure. and now it's CDs and, and things like that. So he says, well, don't worry about it. You know, you, you know the music, and you got the library, because no one has what I have. Anyway, so he introduced me to Carol Nolan, who was a general manager at WBEZ. And I sat down and talked with her, and, and she liked the idea, but she had no idea what kind of music I was going to play. She says, okay. I started with a half hour, and within six months, I had an hour show. The Mambo Express hit the airwaves in 1982 and soon began to draw an audience and grow in popularity as word spread. Parra eventually left WBEZ and moved the show to WDCB in the summer of 2004. Did it take long for your audience that had heard you on WBEZ to find you here? Well, see, a lot of that BEZ audience 
wound up at W at DCB because of the music, because the they let the music go, and so it was the same people that were listening to jazz and other stuff were listening to me at BZ. So they're here now, and they found me because I get calls all the time telling me I've been listening to you when you started at BZ and. And I don't know what happened to you, and blah blah blah. You know, so uh, same audience, it, but it, it it has gotten bigger. People love this music. Pata signed off from the Mambo Express almost 35 years after it debuted. I asked him in 2017 if saying goodbye would be emotional. Oh yeah, I'm an emotional person. You know, uh, that's what music does to you. Not only the, the solos and, and the music, but the lyrics. You know, uh, guys that uh, write songs, there's something behind it, the lyric. And, uh, yeah. One last thing, and I know it's, it's kind of cliche, but what are you going to miss most about doing the Mambo Express every week? Well, you know what? The audience, my audience, I respect them very much. I don't shortchange them. When I play on the air... It's quality stuff. Uh, I'm going to miss that. They take time out to listen to what I do. And it's really up to me to entertain them. And, and then I respect the, the people that created this music, that wrote the music, the pioneers, you know. In every style of music, there's someone that, you know, that started this stuff. It makes life a little easier. Music is great. Well, I think I speak for all of your fans that tune in on, on Sundays and everyone here at WDCB when I say we're going to miss you tremendously. Well, it's hard to let go. But you know what? I, uh, at my age, sometimes I can get out of my garage. You yeah. know, you got to shovel snow. And I ain't about to do that anymore. Maybe, uh, who knows, when the sun comes up. Thank you, Gary. That was an interview I did with Victor Parra ahead of his last broadcast of the Mambo Express in 2017. If you weren't tuned in earlier, Pata passed away this week at the age of 87. He was the genuine article, and he'll be deeply missed. A quick note, WDCB host Rene Avila will be paying tribute to Victor later today on his show Mambo In, which airs 4 to 6 p.m. here on WDCB. Tune in for that. I know he has some special things planned. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section, but remember you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then... I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Lo mataron por picante. Y ahora ya no pega más. Todas salen por la noche. Ha palmado 